Thanks for listening to the Prevention of Blindness Society of Metropolitan Washington event replay channel. The replay of this event starts now. All right. And we will be sharing our recording after the event on our website, youreyes.org, and via email. All right, a couple announcements. First, did you know that the month of October is National Book Month? Well, back by popular demand, we are going to be continuing our Low Vision Book Club, POB Reads. Yes, we're going to have a winter session. Our first meeting is going to be on Friday, November 4th at 11 a.m. For the month of November, the selection is A Psalm for the Wild Built. Now, all the selections we've you're using on the are available on Talking Books, Audible, and most other audiobook platforms. The club will meet virtually on a bi-monthly basis. So if you're already signed up, great. And if you want to sign up for this time around, visit pobreads.org. As a reminder, our resource hotline is available Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. And we also have in-person appointments still at our Bethesda Low Vision Learning Center. These are available on Mondays, Thursdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. If you or someone you know would like to be added to our newsletter mailing list, Your Eyes Today, give our resource hotline a call. That number is 301-951-4444. You can also email us at events at youreyes.org. And I mentioned that recordings will be available. They'll also be available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. You can even ask your Amazon Alexa to play recordings with just your voice. If you have an Alexa-enabled device, you can just say, Alexa, play Prevention of Blindness Society of Metropolitan Washington podcast. Go ahead and give it a call or give it a try or call us at the Low Vision Learning Center for assistance. And we just had a town hall yesterday on the benefits of Amazon Alexa, and we will have a recording available for that here shortly. Finally, the month of October is World Blindness Awareness Month. Did you know that there's 37 million blind individuals in the world? And 80% of those who are blind, um, a lot of their vision loss is preventable. The number one cause of preventable blindness across the world is a bacterial disease called trachoma. And the other two popular reasons around the world is cataracts that have not had the surgery done and uncorrected refractive error. To raise awareness for World Blindness Awareness Day, or uh, month, excuse me, the Prevention of Blindness Society partnered with Prevent Blindness America and the International Association to Prevent Blindness on September 21st as we were on Capitol Hill for Advocacy Day. While we were there, we worked to raise awareness to the different vision and eye-related disorders. We completed glaucoma screenings and overall just raising awareness about eye and vision health. Now, on to today's discussion. Today, we have a unique discussion. Now, many of us on this call have eye doctor appointments multiple times per year, and we may have them through multiple different eye doctors. This could be your optometrist, ophthalmologist, your specialist, such as a glaucoma or retina specialist, and even a low vision specialist. And this doesn't even include our general practitioner or other conditions we have, or even our opti optician or pharmacist. 
With all these different appointments, there's all kinds of information that's shared, and this can be difficult to navigate. It's even harder to get all the information you need nowadays to ensure you're doing everything you need to optimize your site. So for today's discussion, I am happy to interview Dr. Suleiman Alibi, low vision specialist. He's going to provide an overview of the different practitioners, ways to effectively prepare for appointments, and then questions to ask and some explanation on eyeglass prescriptions. So Dr. Alibi, thank you for joining me today. I know it's been a while. How are you doing? And Dr. Alibi, you're on mute. I'm still new to this Zoom thing. Getting <laughs> accustomed to having meetings like this is taking some getting used to now, isn't it? Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all. And I'm happy to be here. And I'm happy that these town hall meetings have continued and that you're all enjoying them. So, Sean, I'm ready for your questions. And hopefully we'll have time for discussion as well. Absolutely. I think, I think we'll have plenty of time for discussion today. So my first question, I mentioned a couple of these practitioners earlier, but with all of these different practitioners, how do I know who does what? Because when I'm going to four different doctors, sometimes I feel a little mixed up. So how do I tell these different practitioners apart and why do I go to each of them? That's a great question, Sean. And it's interesting that for an eye, you have so many different specialties. You would think an eye being such a small part of the body, one person could take care of everything and that would be it. And yet you, you, you've just described a lot of different names and specialists who just deal with the eyes. So let's go back a little bit and see if I can give you an overview of who are all these people and where do they fit in the big scheme of things and what kinds of questions can they answer the most appropriately? So in the eye business, we, we always talk about the three big O's, optometry, ophthalmology, and opticianery or opticians. And people often get these mixed up because when people say, I'm going to an eye doctor, that could be an optometrist or an ophthalmologist. The opticians typically fill the prescriptions that an optometrist or an ophthalmologist would write. The next question is, of course, well, I'm going to an eye doctor. What's the difference between going to an optometrist or going to an ophthalmologist? And to understand that, you have to understand the training of these two O's. Optometrists are eye doctors who have spent four years after basic undergraduate education, have spent four more years specializing just in the eyes, and they may have spent another year or two in a specialty like mine, in low vision. Optometrists are not medical doctors, so they don't become medical doctors first and then optometrists. Optometrists typically, like I said, have an undergraduate education and then enter optometry school where they just focus on the eyes. Ophthalmologists, on the other hand, 
are medical doctors first, who then have specialized in the eyes, and they also spend three to four more years, plus any other training they do, like you mentioned, to become retina specialists, glaucoma specialists, or cataract surgeons. So that's the big difference. And in this country, we typically think of ophthalmologists as surgeons. The ophthalmologists are trained to do cataract surgeries. Optometrists don't do that. Ophthalmologists are trained to treat macular degeneration. Optometrists don't do that. Ophthalmologists are trained to do surgery for glaucoma when you need to lower the pressure. Optometrists don't do that either. So you may want to think of it in that sense that ophthalmologists are surgeons who take care of the eyes and optometrists are more like primary care providers who take care of the eyes. And in different states, optometrists can do different things. So for example, in Virginia, a new law has just been passed that allows optometrists to even use lasers to treat certain things in the eyes. But that's not the case in Maryland or in DC. So it can get confusing because depending on what procedure you're gonna have done, it'll depend on whether you need an ophthalmologist and in that sense, a specialist, a glaucoma specialist or retina specialist, or would you be seeing an optometrist? Now, most of you see advertisements for eye exams by my eye doctor, lens crafters, even Costco. There, typically you have optometrists. And there, the optometrists typically also have eyeglasses that they sell and contact lenses and things like that. And that's not to say that ophthalmologists don't have practices in which they too have eyeglasses and contact lenses and so on and so forth. So there is a lot of overlap and it's fair for you to say, well, I'm going to see an eye doctor and the standard of care, meaning it should not make a difference whether you see an optometrist or an ophthalmologist for an eye problem, either of them should be able to diagnose and treat. Now, again, treat depends on what it is. If you saw an optometrist and you had macular degeneration and it was the wet kind that needed injections, the optometrist would refer you to a retina specialist. And that might be the case with the ophthalmologist as well. An ophthalmologist would diagnose your macular degeneration and say it's wet and you need treatment from a retina specialist and would refer you. But that initial entry point shouldn't make a difference. If you had glaucoma, let's say you saw your eye doctor, doesn't matter, optometrist, ophthalmologist, and you needed to just have drops to control the glaucoma, to control the pressure in the eye. Well, optometrists can prescribe drops, ophthalmologists can prescribe drops, but let's say despite getting the me maximum medical treatment, meaning eye drops, your glaucoma still needed more than your optometrist or ophthalmologist would refer you to a glaucoma specialist who could do more things and 
do surgical procedures to help reduce the pressure. So I hope this kind of helps you distinguish between at least optometry and ophthalmology and where they're similar. And like I said, opticians really are not trained in medical eye care at all, but they know a lot about eyeglasses, about different types of frames, tints and colors that you might need. And they're the ones who fit you in the glasses and make sure they fit right, adjust, make adjustments. And opticians sell eyeglasses and contact lenses. Now, opticians may also hire an optometrist to work in their office and provide the eye exam. But typically, you can think of opticians like a pharmacist, perhaps, that fill prescriptions. Okay, I don't want to keep going on, Sean, and um, maybe that sort of sets the stage for your next question or any questions out there. Yes, thank you so much. That was very enlightening and helped explain different things. So next question, we have these different doctors, and every time we go to the doctors, we have to fill out a lot of forms. So the question I have is, do these different um, professionals, as well as the different offices, do they communicate with one another? And what communications do they do? What information do they share with one another um, regarding our records to make sure everything is taken care of? Okay, that's a good question as well. As you know, whenever you go to any healthcare provider, you're always going to fill out forms. And some of those requirements are because insurance companies, whether you have Medicare or whatever it is, will want to have that, inf you need that information to build the insurance. A lot of it is demographic information, dates of birth and so on and so forth. But from the medical side, of course, the eyeball is not just in, it's, it's part of the human body. So a lot of eye issues can start with other things in the in the body for example if i say diabetic retinopathy is one of the leading causes of vision loss in this country well diabetic retinopathy occurs because people have diabetes and diabetes is something that needs to be taken care of by your primary care provider by your endocrinologist and how well the diabetes is under control may affect the amount of diabetic retinopathy you may develop. If I say somebody who has hypertension may also develop problems in the eyes, and therefore it's important for your eye care provider to know details about your general health. So Sean, everybody, when they go for an eye exam, will have to fill out a form which includes a very thorough history of their general health, what medications they're on, what kinds of family history do they have, not just eye family history, but general health family histories, so that your eye care provider has a good understanding of something they might see in your eye that they can correlate it to something in your medical history or your family history, or they might want to keep in mind that if a person comes in and says, yes, I have a strong family history of diabetes, 
they may not have been diagnosed with diabetes, but we can look in the eyes and say, oh, it's beginning to show up that perhaps you will have to have your diabetes taken care of because there are things we can see in your eyes that tell us that perhaps you are getting diabetes and it's showing up in the eyes or you are getting problems with your blood pressure and it's showing up in the eyes. So the problem is right now, we don't share that information. As you know, most of your doctors are using electronic medical records. And most of you now are getting familiar with going into a portal on a website and pulling information out of that. Ultimately, the goal will be that these portals can, can, can communicate with each other. So if you went into a different spot, let's say you went into the emergency room, ideally, we want to get to the point where the emergency room can pull all your medical history from these portals. You could go into, the into that emergency room and say, I'm having trouble with my eyes. And instead of them having to go through all the questions, they would be able to go into these portals and pull up all your eye history so they could review that as you've come into the emergency room and say, oh, okay, so you have these problems with your eyes, we know that. We're not quite at that point where these portals are communicating and that information is flowing. A lot of it is to do with security, of course. And every eye care provider, every doctor you see, unfortunately makes you fill out all those forms. And we take all that information again. And oftentimes, as many of you know, and when you come to see me, I'll often say, would you please ask your retina specialist, your eye doctor, whomever you've seen before, to send a record, to send at least the last note, the last chart note, so that I have a baseline that I can follow. So eventually, Sean, we will hopefully get to the point where medical information flows freely and you know we can just avoid having every patient fill out everything all over again. But right now, that's not the case. But there is a standard health and medication forms or requirements anytime you see any kind of medical provider, um, let alone eye care providers. So I hope that gives you some sense of that. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, it sounds like it comes down a lot to the electronic health records and they're speaking different languages with one another. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Now, what about myself if I'm going to see the doctor? What information should I have prepared whenever I'm going to see my practitioner, whether that be an ophthalmologist, optometrist, even a general practitioner, but more on the eye side? What information should I bring with me every single time? I think the most important thing is that you always have all your detailed health history. It's nice if I see a patient and they can tell me when they had cataract surgery, when they had an injury to their eye that perhaps needed some type of treatment, whether there's a history of eye diseases in the family, a list of all the medications that they're taking. This kind of basic information is really important. And like you said, Sean, it doesn't matter who you see. All 
medical providers will need this information. And maybe we'll get to the point where we all carry it on our cell phones. And, you know, we, we get to the doctor's office and touch it on, on something and it extracts that information and populates all that information into the doctor's electronic health record. We're not quite there yet, you know, but keeping track of all these things gets complicated because many times you've taken a medication, for example, that didn't help you. It could be an eye drop, but you may not remember the name of it. You know, you'll say, I know I tried something, but it gave me an allergic reaction, made my red eyes. So having that kind of information and for each of you, for each of us, not I need to see eye doctors and doctors in general as well as any of you do. So keeping somewhere a track of what things have you taken medicine-wise perhaps that caused allergic reactions is also very useful and important. And we will all get to that point that somehow we have an electronic database of procedures done to us, whether it's simple things like I had a mole removed or I had some stitches done or I had my tonsils removed or like I said, I had a reaction to certain medications, but having this sort of database of information, which you can then change very easily, you can go in and change would be really perfect. Um, oftentimes patients do bring me nice printed sheets of what they've had done and it's chronological. So they'll go back to from the first time they had any kind of medical surgery or anything done. It's all very helpful. And I think with modern technology and electronic databases, we will eventually get to a standardized um, inventory of things that we can share with our practitioners. But right now you just have to write these things down, especially your medications and bring those in. Many times people bring in a little brown bag full of all their pills and things. I don't mind that either. That's even more useful because sometimes people won't remember the dosages or how many times a day they take it or who prescribed it. That's useful to know as well, because if I have to tell another doctor, oh, you know, this red eye this patient is experiencing is from these medications, then I need to be able to communicate that with that doctor. So knowing the doctor's name, because many times you're seeing many different doctors, um, it's always gonna be written on those medicine bottles. All right, thank you. So also thinking about preparing for my exam, you know, there's, we don't have a ton of time oftentimes, especially with the specialists. They have five, 10 minutes before they gotta go. So we wanna optimize that remaining time. What kind of questions should we be asking our practitioners? And what, and I think, you know, writing them down beforehand is a good idea, but what kind of questions would you recommend they ask both their, maybe they're specialists because you work with a lot of them, but then also for a low vision exam, what questions do you want to, do you want to have the opportunity to answer? Right. And, and, and that's, that's such a good point, Sean. I think we've all experienced this. Nowadays, it seems all medical practices are busy and lots of people in the waiting room and the face-to-face -face time you get with your provider, whether it's an eye care provider or whomever, is really limited, right? It seems like 
five minutes, you're, you've spent a lot of time with them. It's no longer the old fashioned ways where you got to know your doctor and doctor got to know you. Having said that, as you know, a lot of concierge medicine is being set up nowadays because of that, because doctors recognize that too. They have limited time and they don't always have enough time to spend with their patients to explain everything and do everything. And a lot of doctors have said, well, you know, I'm going to do concierge medicine, meaning I'm deliberately only going to have a practice of so many patients so that I can devote enough time for all my patients and answer all their questions. But you pay a premium for that. You know, if you're going to join a concierge practice, then you know you're paying on a monthly basis, on an annual basis, above and beyond the reimbursement from your insurance to that practice so that they can spend the time. So here's what I would say, assuming all of us are seeing our eye, eye, eye doctors and we're going to try and ask questions and get the information we need and make sure we understand it. I think one thing, Sean, is I would recommend always taking somebody with you. You know, how many times do you go home and your loved one or whoever says to you, so what did the doctor say? And then you go, yeah, yeah, I remember the doctor said this, that, and the other. And the person goes, really? That doesn't seem to make sense. Are you sure? Well, now I'm not sure. Did he, you know, this always happens. So I think it's a good idea if you could take somebody in with you who can be your ears as well and be sure that whatever the doctor did say or does say uh, is, is heard by you plus someone else, right? And that person can also ask questions because sometimes if it's about you and you've, you've been told you have macular degeneration, let's say, you might be so troubled by it that after that you don't hear anything else, you know, everything else goes by the wayside because you now you're focused on this diagnosis that you've been given. So at the very minimum, you want to, you want to make sure you repeat back to the doctor. So you say, well, doctor, let me make sure I understand what you're saying. I have this, that, or the other, or I will have to put these drops in my eyes twice a day, or I'm supposed to take these pills for so long, or whatever it is the doctor tells you. I would say, make sure you repeat it back to them and say, can I make sure I understand what you said and say back to the doctor what they, what exactly what they told you. So of course, every patient wants to know do I have something wrong with my eyes, right? And is it because it's something as simple as you don't have the right prescription for your glasses? Or is it something more complicated, which is you're going to need to see a specialist and the specialist is being seen because you have such and such in your eyes. So the first question is always, what is it that is going on in my eyes that you are prescribing something for? And is it going to require a follow-up or is it a one-time thing? You might have woken up with a pink eye and the doctor says, well, put these drops in twice a day for one week and that should take care of it. So 
you need to repeat back. So if I understand, I have a pink eye, I'm gonna use these drops, they're antibiotics twice a day for one week. And then what? Do I come back to see you? Or do I just stop the antibiotics and throw them away? It's important to make sure you know this because oftentimes people will say, okay, I got these leftover drops and the last time I had a pink eye, I used these drops. So you know what? I'll just go ahead and do that. That's probably the worst thing you could ever do because some of these drops do have some side effects and it's important that you don't use them on a chronic basis. Usually when I tell people use these drops, I mean, use them for a week and then throw them away. Don't even keep the bottle because then you're tempted to say, okay, the next time this happens, I'm gonna use them. So make sure you check with your doctor and ask these questions. Do I need to come back? Or if it's fine, am I done? And what do I do with these drops? Should I just keep them in case this happens again or should I throw them away? It's important that you, you know the answers of, to, to these kinds of questions. And the other things to always ask your doctors is even if everything is fine in my eyes and there's nothing wrong, how often do I need to come back? How often should my eyes be checked? You know, I think the dentists are perfect in the way they do everything. All of us know when we have to get our teeth cleaned. All of us know when we have to go back into the dentist, you know, and nobody seems to have any issue with that. You know, we kind of just go, this is the time I've got to go in for my cleaning. I've got to do this. And thankfully, the eyes don't need a whole lot of maintenance. It's not like teeth where you're flossing every day and brushing every day. But as we get older, there's no question there are more likely to be things that need to be looked at. So it's important that you establish this with your doctor and says, when, it, when do I need to come back? So those are the basic things I would say is take somebody in with you. Make sure you understand what it is that is the problem and repeat it back to the doctor. Make sure you understand when you need to come back or what further things need to be done for the diagnosis. If they've referred you, even if they've referred you to another doctor, you're still to ask, but do I come back and see you then? If you're seeing a retina specialist for macular degeneration, your general ophthalmologist or your, your regular eye doctor still may need to have, have you come back and have other things checked. So make sure you know that even though you're seeing a specialist, when do you expect to come back to the, to the regular eye doctor who referred you to the specialist? And, and like I said, make sure even if everything is fine, you understand that it's not come back when there's a problem, but come back in whatever space of time is important for, for that doctor to see you again to check things. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's a really helpful information, I think, and it's something we can replicate at all of our offices. So finally, are there just um, is there anything else that we should do to prepare when it comes to a low vision exam that you haven't already mentioned? Okay, well, thank you, Sean. That that now is down my alley. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd like to make this distinction today, especially because most of you, if you see me, it's going to be different than when you see your general practitioner or your specialist. And 
just to reiterate, you go to your regular eye doctor for routine eye exams and to make sure nothing is changing in your eyes because of, like I said, you might have diabetes, hypertension, you might be getting cataracts because you're getting older, or you have a family history of something. And that regular eye doctor may refer you to the specialist. And that specialist then is just involved with that specific part of the eye. If you see a retina specialist, that person's really involved with the retina. It's not fair to say to them, while you're looking at my retina, could you take a look at my cataracts? Could you look at my dry eyes? That, of course, you have to go back to your regular eye doctor. So you have to limit the questions and things that you would have for the specialist to that thing that they're treating. If it's the macula, that's really all they're going to talk to you about. But then you might be sent to someone like me, a low vision specialist, and it becomes a very different kind of evaluation because low vision specialists are going to help you with your functioning. So far, you've been seeing an eye doctor who is looking at your anatomy, right? They're looking at the cataract, the cornea, the retina, the nerve, and looking at changes to the anatomy and treating the anatomy. They're saying, you have trouble with your vision because you have glaucoma. We now have to treat that. You have vision trouble because you have cataracts. We now need to treat that. Or you have vision problems because your glasses are wrong, and now we're going to prescribe something for that. So that's treating the anatomy. When you go to the low vision specialist, it's about function. So regardless of what's the diagnosis or the change in the anatomy, the low vision specialist is involved with how does that affect your ability to function, right? So function means how does that affect your safety, your independence, your ability to work, go to school, or do the day-to-day -day things that you need to, to stay in your home. So when you see a low vision specialist, it would be unfair to say to them, I've come to see you because my other eye doctors have tried to give me glasses and it hasn't worked. And my specialist is treating my eye condition, but I'm still having trouble. So I've come to you for low vision glasses. That's gonna fix all of these issues. That's not fair because that isn't going to happen. It isn't just because your regular eye doctor or your specialist wasn't able to prescribe glasses that somehow a low vision specialist would prescribe a sometimes different pair of glasses that fixes everything. That's not exactly what, what's going to have to happen now. It's, it's like saying, if you developed arthritis and you said, I'm having trouble walking, and you thought, well, I've always worn a size seven shoe. If I move up to a size nine, that should now help me walk better. Well, of course not. It's not the size of the shoe that's affecting your walking. It's the arthritis. So it's the same with glasses. Same with oftentimes, glasses. oftentimes patients will say to me, um, I just need a little bit stronger. And I'll say, well, your glasses prescription isn't changing or won't have changed because 
your macular degeneration is worse, your glaucoma is worse. You're, you perceive that because you think, well, I'm not seeing as well, and therefore it's got to be something to do with my glasses. Like the arthritis analogy I gave you, you're not walking well because your arthritis is worse. And even if we put you in a size nine shoe, you shouldn't walk any different. So it's the same with the glasses. Oftentimes patients will say, you know, I've been doing fine, but my macular degeneration is worse. I'm gonna to have to come in for a different prescription. The prescription shouldn't really be changing. The prescription changes typically because you have cataracts or you've become more nearsighted or there's a cornea change that changes the shape of your eye causes that astigmatism, then fair enough, there might be a prescription change. But for most of us, once we've stopped growing, our prescriptions stay pretty stable. As we get older, cataracts can change the prescriptions, certainly. But people who have had cataract surgery and they've had a lens put in the eye, I'll often tell you, well, that lens already has the prescription. That's why nowadays you pay for this premium lens that says, once you have cataract surgery, you won't need glasses. And many of you who've gone through that process might know that. So when you come to the low vision specialist, it's really about, okay, let's assume that you've now got the best pair of lenses or glasses you've got. I still check the prescription. I still go through that process just to make sure there isn't any change that perhaps was missed. But nine times out of 10, that's not the issue. The prescription is usually fine. It's the anatomy, the condition that's changing. So knowing that, what things are impacted? And you might say, well, everything's impacted. If you can't see, well, give me a break. I can't see means reading, seeing street signs, recognizing faces, walking safely, everything's affected. Okay, fair enough what things are critical, what things are essential for you. If you were a child, we might say it's seeing the board when I'm sitting in class. If you're working, you might say, well, I spend 10 hours a day in front of a computer. I need to be able to see that. If you're older, you might say, well, I need to drive down to the grocery store at least, get my groceries, and I'm not sure I'm safe doing that anymore. So we have to establish, okay, what's the most important functioning thing that you need help with? If you say everything, then it might be difficult in, in one exam to try and help improve function with everything. So we, we definitely have to try to establish what's the most important thing, what's your priority? So going back to Sean, when you were saying, what questions and what things should I have prepared ahead of time before the visit? For a low vision specialist, you should have prepared a list, or at least in your mind, a list of priorities, that these are the things that I absolutely need to be able to see to do, and these are the things that are affecting my safety, my independence, or my efficiency, if you're working, you might say, well, I have to get so much done 
in eight hours a day, but with my vision the way it is, it's taking me so much longer. It's really slowing me down and my employers are getting upset. So safety, independence, efficiency of the most important top three things that you need to see to do on a daily basis. You know, it'd be very important that you bring in or at least have clear in your mind that these are the things I need the most help with. The next thing I'd like to know is what are you doing to help yourself to make it easier? So people say I've implemented a magnifier or I'm using a certain type of lighting or I've put some software on my computer or whatever it is. It's important that a low vision specialist understands what you yourself are doing to try to help you with these things. If you can bring those things in, that's good. You might bring in three pairs of glasses and say, I drive with these, I read with these, or this is the pair I use on the computer. Or if you're using a magnifier, bring it in with you. It's helpful to see what type of magnifiers, because sometimes people say, well, I got one of those magnifiers on the internet. Well, I don't know what that could be. You know, the Amazon one, 3X. Well, again, you know, 3X you buy on Amazon. It, 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 who knows if it's really a 3X? So please bring in the things that you are using so that I know the low vision specialist knows what you are doing to help yourself. And again, bring somebody with you because it's important that when the low vision specialist tells you, well, here are the things you need to try. Here are the things you need to modify that you, you have written it down or somebody else has listened and you have a clear understanding of what you're going to do next. Because with the low vision specialist, it isn't take these drops for one week, twice a day. It isn't, you know, just get these glasses and everything will be fixed. It's, it's a series of strategies and sometimes modifications to the environment, like we talk about lighting, or modifications in behavior. I might say, well, you're going to have to learn to look off to the side and try to avoid the blind spot you have in the center. And here are some ways to try to practice doing those things. So it's definitely a change in strategy, a change in methodology on how you're going to be able to do things. So it is a very different evaluation and we can, you know, I can answer more questions regarding that, Sean, if there are, but that, that kind, of, kind of gives you an overview of how it would be different to see a low vision specialist and the kinds of questions you would ask him or her. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, that was helpful. And so thinking about now, about your glasses. Now, when I see my eyeglass prescription, there's all these little letters, there's S's, C's, PD's, all of that kind of stuff. Just what do these numbers or numbers <laughs> and abbreviations mean? And are there specific numbers or pieces that tell me that I have low vision? Very good question, Sean. So the short answer to that is none of you can look at your prescription for eyeglasses and tell whether you have low vision or not. That doesn't tell you. That's not an indication, all right? And the eyeglasses prescription, like I compared it to a shoe size, is 
numbers, right? A shoe size is numbers. And even when you buy clothes, you're buying a certain size of shirt or dress, you know, your neck size, your waist size, your inner leg, and, and so on and so forth. So in the eyes, Sean, the things that we're measuring are really the length of the eye and the curvature of the eye and the focusing ability of the eye. So these three things, the length of the eye, the curvature of the eye, and the eye's focusing ability. These are the three numbers. So if I take the length of the eye, by that I mean, if you have a perfectly shaped eyeball and it is perfectly spherical, that's the shape, and it has the ability to focus near and far, you probably don't need any glasses at all. That's the perfect eyeball. And many people have lived most of their lives and not needed glasses until they got older. And then they've gone to the drugstore, right? And those glasses you pick up at the drugstore have nothing to do with the length of the eye or the shape of the eye, those drugstore glasses have to do with the focusing ability of the eye. Meaning, as we get older, it's harder to focus up close. We tend to hold things out further. That's how you know people are having trouble focusing because when they're looking at something, they're stretching their arms out and they're complaining of their arms are getting too, sh too short. You know, if they only had longer arms, they would be fine. But that's because their eyes are having trouble focusing, focusing things up close. So for that perfect eyeball, which has a perfect length, perfectly spherical, the shape is perfectly round, eventually we will all, because of natural aging, need focusing glasses. So that focusing on the prescription is usually called the reading portion, or sometimes we call it an ad, meaning we're having to add something to our eyes to focus, okay? And the amount of focusing we've lost will dictate how strong those glasses are. So when you go to the drugstore, you say, well, wait a minute, there's plus one, plus two, plus 250, three, <laughs> which, which one of these am I supposed to get? Well. That depends on how much focusing is left in your eyes. If you still have quite a bit of focusing, you may not need much. A plus one is probably good enough. And if you are having a lot of trouble focusing, then you might need a plus two or a plus 250 or even a plus three. Again, it's helpful if you've gone for an eye exam, an eye doctor can tell you exactly, look, this is how much you need majority of people who don't have any trouble, who've never needed glasses, will often say to me, I've never been for an eye exam. I said, why not? Well, I've always been able to see just fine. So, well, how do you get the drugstore glasses? Oh, I just go in there and try a few and get a pair. Uh, so I'll say to them, well, how many times have you been to a dentist in all these years? Oh, well, I go every six months and I get my teeth. So I said, well, which is more important, your vision or your teeth? I mean, teeth are important. They'll go, well, so is my vision. So I'll often say, well, 
even if you don't have trouble seeing, even if you don't have any issues, it's a good idea to get an eye exam at some point so that you have a baseline on the health of your eyes and that eye doctor can also guide you as you get older for what kind of focusing issues you might develop because of age, you will, everybody does. And that way, even if you're getting drugstore glasses, hopefully you're getting the right number. It doesn't do any harm, by the way. If you got the wrong number, it doesn't damage your eyes. People worry about that. But obviously, you should get the right number. Now, let me go back to the first two things that I talked about. The other things on your prescription we write are to do with the length of the eye or the shape of the eye. So if your eye is not a perfect length, it might be too long or too short. And if it's too long, you're myopic or nearsighted. If your eyeball is too short, you're hyperopic or farsighted. And for the sake of keeping this simple, if you're nearsighted, it basically means you can see near, the length of your eye is set, so it will see near, but when you look up, things are out of focus, they're blurry. That's nearsighted. If you're farsighted, it's the other way around. You can see far, but when you try to focus it near, it's harder to see. Farsighted people need glasses for near, and nearsighted people take off their glasses to see near. So that's the second, that's the, the, the length of the eye, eyeball is that number, which is either plus or minus, meaning you're either nearsighted, minus, it'll say minus some number. If you're farsighted, it'll say plus some number, okay? So again, nearsightedness, farsightedness, that's something you're born with. That's just the way your eye developed. And you will know that, I've always worn glasses. I've been nearsighted. I've always needed glasses to drive, to watch TV, or I've always needed glasses to read. So typically you, you've known that, that I'm nearsighted or farsighted. The one everybody gets confused about is the shape of the eye. Like I said, not the lens, not the focusing, but the shape. So again, if you have a perfectly spherical eyeball, perfectly round, perfect shape, then I would say you have no astigmatism, all right? But if your eyeball is longer in one meridian, one part of it, and shorter in the other, then that's what we call astigmatism. So it may not be a perfect spherical. So think of an egg, right? Think of an egg. So if your eye is egg-shaped, then in that case, you you will have this funny term we call astigmatism that everybody says, but do I have astigmatism? Well, you can have an eyeball whose length is too long, but it's still a perfect round sphere, in which case it's a nearsighted eyeball, but no astigmatism. Or you can have an eyeball that's too short, but it's still perfectly round. You have a farsighted eye and no astigmatism. But you could have a nearsighted eyeball that's long, but the shape is not spherical, then you have astigmatism. Or you can have a far-sighted eyeball that's small lengthwise, but it is not perfectly round, in which case you have astigmatism. So those are the three things you see on the prescription, Sean. You'll see a number for the nearsightedness or the far-sightedness. 
you'll see an, a number for the astigmatism. And some of you may not see a number there. It's sometimes called a cylinder is what we call the correction for the astigmatism. We sometimes call it a cylinder, um, but it may not be there. And you'll see a, a number for the amount of focusing you need help with called the ad. Of course, there is another number because when we define the astigmatism, we, we, we define it in terms of the axis because the eye is not a two-dimensional thing. It's a three-dimensional a three-dimensional thing. So the axis is from zero to 180 degrees. So where the astigmatism, where the curvature is erroneous, if you like, is what we measure in terms of the axis. So you do see the nearsightedness, farsightedness, the, the lack of sphericity, the, the astigmatism, an axis that tells us where that astigmatism is, off in what meridian and then finally the focusing thing called the ad these are the these are the things written into the prescription but again i don't think you can understand that or interpret that unless you've studied the eyes your opticians where you take the prescription will understand that and they understand those numbers because it's from those numbers that the glasses prescriptions are made so having good opticians who do understand those numbers are very important. I sometimes get called and they will say, I'm calling from wherever the place is. And the optician there asks me a question where I immediately realize they don't understand any of these numbers. They don't understand what nearsightedness, farsightedness is. And, and they don't understand the prescription. Well, that's a detriment to you because when they make the glasses, they don't really understand what they've done. It's like going to a tailor. Let's say you're having clothes made, custom made for you, and the tailor takes all these measurements and you say to them, so does that give you a good idea of the shape of my body? And he or she says, no, I just pump all these numbers into this computer and it spits out your, your dress, your shirt, your thing. And you think, well, so the computer's making every all the choices. Yeah, exactly. You know, so what does what do you as a tailor do? Oh, I make more money because I'm custom making you this. <laughs> well, that's the thing with the glasses prescription. Of course, we now have machines that create the lens, if you like, for your prescription. And if the opticians don't understand the, these numbers, then yeah, they spit out a lens, but you got to fit the lens to the person, right? Even if this computer produces an ideal shirt, you still need the tailor to say, oh, it's still a little loose here. I'll take a little bit in here. I'll adjust it here. In the same way, it's critical that these prescriptions are matched to your eyes because you still put the glasses on your face and having them fit right, having the center of the eye match the center of the lens so that the astigmatism, the sphericity, the, the farsightedness, nearsightedness, and even the reading part, what we call the ad nowadays, people wear bifocals with no lines, those measurements are critical and they do need to be adjusted. 
right? Your tailor makes you a shirt or a dress, but they, you still put it on and have them make adjustments, even though they've taken perfect measurements. So this is very important. This is very critical that this is done right. Okay, <laughs> stop. <All right. laughs> Take any more questions. All right, well, thank you, Dr. Alibi. And that's the end of my questions today. So I do thank you again for sharing all this useful information. I know I learned a lot and I'm gonna use it for my next eye exam, that's for sure. Um, any final thoughts or points you wanna talk before, share before we uh, open up for questions? Um, no, I think it'll be interesting. I'm sure things will come up when people ask questions and then I can always elaborate. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Alibi. We are gonna open up time for questions here. Now, again, to unmute yourself, there's a, a microphone at the bottom left of your screen. You can also press the Alt button plus the letter A. If you're on the phone, it's star six. Sean, I do see in the chat, there are two questions from Alex. Shall I tack, try and tackle these? Yes, and one thing I do wanna keep everyone keep in mind is we can't tell you specifics about uh, your specific medical condition or your own um, procedure that you wanna get done. We can provide very general overview, but we can't give you specifics because everyone's gonna be different. Yeah, so I see, okay, in the chat, Alex, you asked how much benefit can a patient get from the surgery mentioned to lower, oh, I see why you're saying that, Sean. Alex, yeah, I won't be able to answer some of these questions. How much benefit can a patient get from the surgery you mentioned to lower the pressure in glaucoma? I, I, that you need to ask the surgeon. That's a very good question. How much benefit am I going to get? When should a patient seek a second opinion before seeing a specialist, e.g. ophthalmologist surgeon who handles macular puckers? When should a patient seek a second opinion? Um, I, and again, I think these are very reasonable questions to ask because if you've been sent to a retina specialist and they say you have something called like a macular pucker, um, which is just saying there is some scar tissue causing some um, surface irregular, irregularity on your macula, I, I think if you, and, and again, it's, you know, each of us is going to be different about this. If you are confident and comfortable with the surgeon who's given you the diagnosis and what they're telling you, you may perhaps not need to seek a second opinion. And you might just say, okay, I like this person. He has a good, he or she has a good reputation. And they're confident that the outcome of this is going to be good. Then perhaps you don't even need a second opinion. Now, if you if you have a situation where something going on in the eye where it's controversial, you know, where the doctor or the surgeon is saying, well, I'm going to recommend surgery, but, you know, I, I'm not going to give you a hundred percent guarantee that this may work or it may not work, you know, and you sense that's doubt and you wonder, well, is there a risk benefit ratio here? In other words, by doing this, am I going to make things worse rather than better? Then I think you should seek a second opinion and, and that's perfectly reasonable, right? When is it better to get cataract surgery utilizing a scalpel to implant the newsland versus advanced laser cataract surgery with premium IOLs? Gosh, Alex, where are you coming up with all these questions? <laughs> um, 
so again, the answer to that, I think you need to ask the cataract surgeon that question. I think it's a very good question. Um, and as technology improves, there are better, better methods of doing cataract surgery. And, and some of it, it depends on your surgeon. Sometimes the surgeon is more comfortable with the scalpel and has always done it with that and is confident, then you know that's perfectly fine. And, and sometimes your surgeon is going to say, well, this new technique is definitely a lot better and it gives me a cleaner incision and I get a, you know, especially if I'm doing a premium IOL, then, um, you know, you, again, that needs to be discussed with, with the surgeon. If you are nearsighted, why do some people get farsighted later in life? Okay, that's, again, because of the lens in the eye. Like I said, all of us, have trouble focusing eventually as we get older because the lens in the eye is getting um, thicker. It loses that flexibility. And as it does that, it even changes the way the, uh, the light is focused. So that lens in the eye becomes like a pair of glasses, if you like. So that's why nearsighted people say, hey, suddenly my distance vision is better without my glasses um, because that lens in the eye is getting thicker, it's becoming more curved and it's acting like a lens that you would wear. So that, that makes sense then. Um, Cheryl, thank you. And thank, okay, good. I answered those questions on the chat. Now open to the floor. All right, and again, everyone, um, Alt plus A or the button at the bottom left, you're on the phone, star six. Oh, good. I did such a great job. <laughs> I answered all these questions. Jason, you have a question. Go ahead. Thank you, Dr. Alibi. Jason from Reader's Digest Partners for Sight Foundation. And it's it's nice to see you and sort of meet you. Um, your your reputation in, in the Washington, D.C. area is, is outstanding. I've heard a tremendous, about you, a tremendous amount about you. And thank you for um, an excellent presentation today. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more. You alluded to it. Maybe gave some of the folks on the call um, some words that they could use or ways that they could express themselves when they're interested in, in things related to what I would call um, vision rehabilitation services, the services that Prevent Blindness of Metro Washington um, also provides so well. You, you gave some examples about, you know, are you having difficulty reading or seeing the board or, or do you need adaptive software on your computer? You know, how, how can a, a, a patient approach their doctor, even if it's their general eye doctor, and sort of say, you know, I think I need assistance because I'm not seeing things as well as I would like in my home, or the lighting in your office is better than the lighting when I read in my, you know, in my living room. What, what can, can folks say to ask for these questions? Because if you can't give them the lenses to read their watch, a talking watch would be helpful, or a large print watch would be helpful. If you can't give them lenses to help them read uh, their favorite magazine, perhaps that magazine is available in large print. Um, how, how can they engage this discussion with the doctor that may not be a low vision specialist and so attuned to these things as you are and you presented today? All right. Oh, well, thank you, Jason. Thank you for being here today. And thank you for a very, very good question. And, you know, I think what happens many times is when you see your eye doctor, you always are very hopeful that somehow they're going to give you a prescription, they're gonna make your glasses stronger, and that's going to solve it. It's when it doesn't and you go back 
and oftentimes they're telling you, well, there's no way I can, I cannot make your glasses any stronger. This is the best I can give you that this dialogue needs to occur. And Jason, you, you brought it up very well today. You, you, you have to say to them, surely if you're not able to fix my glasses or cure my eyes, are there other ways that I can achieve the things I need to see to do? And that's when this discussion about low vision or vision rehabilitation needs to come into play. Unfortunately, we haven't got to the stage yet where there's an automatic progression into this area of vision rehabilitation. If you had a hip surgery, you would expect to undergo rehabilitation. The surgeon who puts the artificial hip in your, in your body doesn't say, well, I'm done. You go, okay, yeah, well, when do I get my physical therapy? You have an expectation, you have an anticipation. And this doesn't typically or naturally occur in the eye field because this concept of vision rehabilitation still seems to exist out on the fringes and people don't automatically seek out vision rehabilitation. But your point is very valid, Jason, that you should ask that question to your doctors. And I guess maybe Sean, I was negligent in, in bringing that up, that when your doctors say to you, okay, I'm sending you to a specialist, they should also say to you, but I'd like to see you back after you've had X and Y treatments done. And when, when you see them again, you can say, okay, you've got the reports. How's my treatment going? Do you think it's good? And now how do I manage these things? How do I read when I'm not able to see small print anymore? How do I compensate for the fact that I've had to stop driving now? And you do have to put the onus on the doctors to bring up these topics of, well, there are alternatives. You know, life doesn't have to end because you can't see the paper anymore. There is in this area, the Washington year, which will, you know, read the paper to you. There is the option of talking books and there are strategies and tools that you can avail yourself to. And the doctor should be referring you into the system. And I say into the system, meaning whether you start with the Prevention of Blindness's Low Vision Resource Center in Bethesda, where you can go and talk to somebody who's visually impaired themselves and get an overview, or a low vision specialist who, 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 can, who can address this. Now, I should say to you that most doctors have had experience with low vision. Even now, I have ophthalmology residents from Howard University who rotate with me. And they're not spending weeks and days with me. They're, they get one or two days with me and they're busy. They're surgeons after all. They have a lot to learn. But they do come in and they do learn about what vision rehabilitation is and how we work with patients. And even this Sunday, we're going to be giving a low vision symposium for these residents. So they are aware of this. They are 
required as part of their training to understand what happens if you if you're telling the patient well there's nothing more i can do for your anatomy but there is something we can do to help you function you know that they're taught that you've got to be able to make that bridge between the medical treatment of the anatomy and helping the patient function better and and what kind of things are available similarly in optometry school um as far as i know all optometry students do go through training in low vision rehabilitation and many of your regular eye doctors may actually have that ability to take care of those things and they might say to you okay i'm going to schedule you for a different day when we're just going to do some vision rehabilitation and i'm going to introduce different strategies and tools to help you see i'll introduce you to lighting strategies to magnifying strategies and tell you about resources in, in this community so it could be that your own eye doctors have some background and training in vision rehabilitation but it's not something they can do on a typical busy day in the middle of their day but they do set aside a day a week a day a month where that's what they specialize in so that's a good point jason i think it's it is important with all the resources we have um and and like you said the reader's digest foundation you know we have the uh the large print calendars here that everybody loves you know and we give them out i have people calling me and saying when are those calendars coming out you know so it's i'll send some more <laughs> yeah it's the little things that really make the difference you know these little things improve the quality of your life and and make it possible for you to do these day-to-day -day things more easily. So that, that's very good. You should ask your eye doctors and challenge them and not just say, accept that they said to you, well, there's nothing else that could be done and you leave the office with your head down. You know, you've got to, you've got to definitely ask them, okay, you are not able to medically fix my problem, but are there any ways I can help myself function better? Right? That's the, that's the important question. Thank you, Jason. All right. Do we have another question? I saw someone unmute earlier and then it looks like you remuted yourself. Um, so please feel free to unmute and ask your question. All right, maybe their question was answered. Yeah. Um, so while we're waiting for anyone um, to ask their questions, I'm just going to give a quick announcement. This about an event we have this Saturday. Uh, so this Saturday, we will be having our fourth annual Low Vision Symposium. We are partnering with the Washington National Eye Center to put this on. And as a part of this, we have our um, device and vendor expo as well. And so if you're interested, we're going to have different um, device vendors, as well as trainers, join us to talk about the services they provide, as well as the technologies that they can uh, share and teach on. Now, if you're interested on this, it is going to be on Zoom. It's going to be at 12 p.m. this Saturday, October 22nd. And you can give our resource hotline a call at 301-951-4444. 
if you'd like to get the Zoom information if you're not already on our mailing list. I know we sent it out earlier, but just in case. All right, any other questions? All right. Well, Dr. Alibi, I will I, take that. Uh, oh, Sandy, go ahead. Yeah, so if you have time, Dr. Alibi, um, you always have a range of expertise and uh, familiarity on your uh, POB town hall, and I hope you can hear me over the wind. Can you go back to the very most basic? How would somebody who's just heard this concept of low vision for the first time recognize whether they have low vision and uh, seeing a low vision optometrist and reaching out to resources might benefit their functional life. Just at the very most basic, you know, to do with reading, transportation, safety. If you just re reiterate that one more time, how does one recognize low vision in oneself since there's okay. no specific definition? Thank you. Thank you, Sandy. I wish I was walking outside there. It looks like a nice blue day, sunny day. All right. So, you know, the question, and this question comes up a lot, even amongst eye doctors, is what is the right time to consider low vision or vision rehabilitation options and strategies? And how do you define this, this idea of low vision? Now, if you ask Medicare, right, because of course you're going to see a low vision specialist and hopefully the visits are reimbursed by Medicare, which Medicare does recognize low vision. Medicare likes to use a, a number, right? They try to say, well, if it's 2070 or worse, then, then it's considered low vision. If you ask some state agencies, they'll say, well, it's 2200 or worse because that's the definition of legal blindness, right? And, and I think Sandy's point is, is really important because I see, I, I'll give you an example. I'm gonna be talking about this example, in fact, in, in this lecture we're giving this, this um, Saturday, but I recently saw a young person, she's only 39, and she had a condition which, which causes leakage in the macula. So it's not macular degeneration, but it's a type of macular degeneration. And, and it typically resolves, it self-resolves, it doesn't, doesn't cause any permanent problems, it typically self-resolves. And it started in her left eye, and that's when she was seen by her regular eye doctor because she went in and she said, hey, you know, this left eye of mine is suddenly not seeing that clear and sharp. And that doctor said, oh, yes, you have developed this leakage. It's called central serous retinopathy in case anybody's wondering. But anyway, the definition isn't important. It's just the fact that she had this. And he did refer her to a retina specialist. And the retina specialist says, oh, yeah, yeah, this happens a lot to young people. Don't worry. It self-resolves. It'll go away. It's like having a blister that eventually settles down. And it's true. In her case, it didn't settle down. And in fact, it's scarred. So in that eye, the left eye, she has this scar, just like people with macular degeneration, where everything is 
distorted and it kind of blocks her ability to see. And that eye doesn't have good vision on the eye chart. But the retina especially, but your other eye is fine. You know, it's 2020. And so you're okay. But she persisted, like Jason said, you know, she didn't leave it at that. She said to this doctor, the retina specialist, she said to him, you know, I work as an IT specialist. I'm in front of a computer eight to 10 hours a day. I'm just not able to do this. You know, it's really causing me problems. And you think, but your other eye is 2020. It shouldn't be a problem. And the retina specialist looked again and he said, yeah, but you had a similar thing in this eye, in the right eye, but it's really very mild and you still have 2020 vision. But because she persisted, he said, okay, well, go see the low vision specialist. And, you know, I don't know whether anything can be done to help you. But anyway, because you're asking, and that's the important thing, you got to ask, I did get to see her. And what was amazing to me is two things. One is that interference from the left eye. You would think if something happens in one eye, your brain would just switch to the better eye. And that's typically what does happen. In this case, that didn't happen. But the interference from the left eye was causing this disturbance, you know, where she said, it just bothers me with that left eye not seeing well. And the 2020 in the right eye, yes, but she was looking around a tiny little blind spot that she could easily circumvent letters. You know, when we measure your vision with an eye chart, it's with isolated letters. So she could move this tiny blind spot out of the way. But when I had her read text, she read very slowly and made a lot of mistakes. And I was surprised. And, and that was the reason, because this tiny blind spot was interfering, like having a pebble in your shoe, right? You're walking and then you're saying, well, it's just not quite comfortable, but you're walking. Yeah, but occasionally, you know, my foot goes funny and I walk a little funny and that little pebble gets under the sole of my foot and it interferes with my ability to walk happily. And imagine if you were an Olympic athlete or running a marathon and you had a pebble in your shoe, you'd have to stop to take the pebble out. You're not going to finish the race like that, even though you can still run. So this is what was happening. So there you go. There was a situation where definitely her work efficiency, remember I said these things, safety, independence, efficiency to do her work was definitely impacted. And, you know, she couldn't do this for eight to 10 hours a day. So the, the point at which you have a problem is something you may have to identify yourself because the eye doctor may be using a standardized method of referring you saying, okay, once you hit 2070, once you hit 2200, then you're legitimately low vision and need to undergo vision rehabilitation evaluation. But each of you depends on your activities. Like I said to this young girl, I said to her, well, what if you were just living on a deserted island, you didn't have to look at a computer, there are no roads to drive on, and you basically came out, got your 
got your coconuts off the tree and sat down and relaxed all day long. Well, then the vision, this issue would be irrelevant. You know, it wasn't going to impact that. But it's because she's an IT specialist on a computer eight to 10 hours a day. Um, it's having a significant impact. So for each of you, it's not for your doctors to say, well, you still have 2040 vision. You're still legal to drive. The question is, is your ability to do whatever it is you need to do? It could be a 2040 vision, but at nighttime, uh-uh, even that 2040 is interfering. It's at what point do you feel your safety driving, your independence, ability to take care of your own mail and bills and write checks, um, or your efficiency, depending on what it is you do that requires that degree of efficiency, is impacted. And only you know that. Only you know when you've reached that point. You know, it's not the measurement on the eye chart necessarily that dictates that, that defines that. It's your activity. So to answer your question, Sandy, and that's a long ways to go around that, is each one of us is going to be different about this. And some of us compensate so well. I have some patients who have advanced macular degeneration, but they function better than some of my patients who have very early macular degeneration. And even the retina specialists are so surprised because I'll say, oh no, this person's doing just fine. Well, how are they doing fine? Because they've learned to adjust and adapt and they have the tools and strategies. Whereas somebody newly diagnosed will not have developed those strategies or have the right tools. Um, and so it's more difficult for them initially. So it's, it, it evolves, it's a process of learning to adopt strategies, tools, and a different way to approach the problem. It's, you know, I, I can, I'm always telling everybody, your vision is in your mind. You're not seeing with the eyeball, you're seeing with your brain. So many times it's the brain's ability to circumvent the problem that allows you to function better. So this is a process, and this is where going for the low vision evaluation helps you understand where are you on this process, right? I, I sit down with patients all day long. I, 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 pretty, I figured this out pretty quickly, actually, you know, in the first 10 or 15 minutes where they are, because just listening to them and then watching them do my test, reading on the eye chart and so on and so forth, I have a fairly good feel for how well they're doing or how well they've adjusted and adapted. And it is surprising sometimes that it isn't necessarily the measurements on the eye chart or necessarily the how advanced the condition in the eye is, whether it's macular degeneration, glaucoma, whatever it is, whatever the diagnosis is, it's really about how well has that individual been able to make this adjustment and adaptation. And each one of you is gonna be different. And that's what you have to explore during this low vision evaluation.
how about that to end with that sean <laughs> all right yeah that sounds good this was great thank you so much dr alibi this was so enlightening and informative for all of us on today and i appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule to do this uh, and thank you everyone for joining us today the recording will be available later on this week uh, so stay tuned we will have an announcement for that um, but otherwise i hope everyone has a great rest of your day and a great rest of your week as well and we will see you next time